seated. Seems like you already got that memo, so good job. I'm really excited to be preaching you to this morning for a lot of reasons, uh, two particular reasons that I want to share with you. First of all, um, I'm excited to preach to you because this means that Cody doesn't have to be here, uh, and that gives him a break. It allows him to rest. Um, scripture commands us to rest, and so I'm really excited to enable Cody to get the chance to rest. And the second reason that I'm excited to be here is because this is uh, a picture to you every time that John gets up here, or I get up here, or Chris get up, gets up here. It's a reminder to you that we don't need Cody. We love Cody, don't get me wrong, and I'm not praying that he gets hit by a bus. That would be horrible. But he's not the only one that can feed us out of God's word. And it's, it's dangerous for us to get too dependent on one man. Um, so it's good, it's good that we're doing this this morning. So what that means is I'm not going to tell you how nervous I am. I'm not going to waste time explaining that this is my first time doing this. Instead, we're just going to jump right in. So if you would, please turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Habakkuk. We're going to be uh, talking about Habakkuk chapter 3, verses 16 through 19. And Habakkuk is a very small book. It's only three chapters. So um, I recommend either looking it up in the uh, index in the front of your Bible or just uh, scrolling there in your phone, which is what I would probably do. Um, and before I kick off, I just got to apologize to Tony for being so extra that I couldn't use the pulpit. Instead, I'm using this uh, um, very tall um, uh, music stand, and uh, that's because I'm not skilled enough to be able to like look all the way down here and like back up at you at the same time. So this gives me the easy, like I can just flick my eyes back at you. That's my goal anyway. That's what we're going to try to do. All right, as you're turning to Habakkuk, I want to tell you a story. And this story is a story about my family. It happened to us about three years ago in the spring of 2020, right at the start of the pandemic. I wonder if you can remember back that far. For me, you know, it's pretty hard to forget that spring of 2020, that pandemic, that first spring. Everything was locked down. We didn't know anything. We didn't know how long it was going to last. We didn't know how bad the coronavirus actually was going to be. We didn't know where to go to find toilet paper. We didn't know anything. But we were all getting into something, right? We were getting into hiking or biking or baking or something, right? Just not friends. We weren't. We weren't doing a whole lot of social connection right there. Uh, we hunkered down with our families, and what my family was getting into that spring was house projects. We thought, hey, this is only going to be three months, so let's spend every weekend doing house projects. We lived in a house that needed a lot of work, and so that's what we were getting into. And this particular weekend, this particular Saturday, the house project of the week was painting. So Kelly's at the front of the house, right? <clears throat> She's using a brush to cut in one of the windows that's at the front of the house overlooking Fifth Street in Marietta. And she's painting over a horrible dark maroon color that literally symbolized our failure to communicate in our early marriage. She's painting over it with a pleasing light gray. It just looks so much better. It fit the room way better. <clears throat> in the corner is the drop cloth where all her painting supplies are, the paint, brushes, rollers, all that. She's just kind of strewn out there, right? No rhyme or reason. In the middle, all the furniture is huddled together so that she can have access to the, all the walls. I'm at the back of the house, and between us, there's a barricade 
because I've got young kids now, but three years ago, go figure, they were three years younger. We're trying to keep them out of Kelly's way. So my side of the barricade, total disaster, absolute war zone. It's like some ragtag group of superhero rescue vehicles invaded the children's section of a local library because there's books everywhere. There's toys everywhere. And the kitchen's a wreck. Breakfast is on the counter. Dinner's on the stove. The sink, the dishes are sitting in the sink. But it was a great day. Nothing was wrong with that. I mean, sometimes you got to put everything aside so you can make progress, right? We were doing it. We were making it happen. And that awful color was getting gone, so it was a good day. And as Kelly was painting, she got a call on her cell phone, which was not very unusual. Called a lot of people during the pandemic, right? So I walked over to my side of the barricade because I was a little bit starved for social interaction at the time. I wanted to see who it was, so I was curious. And Kelly put down her paintbrush, and she walked over to her phone, and she picked it up, trying to be careful not to get paint on it as she answered. Hello? It was Kelly's mom, which wasn't surprising. She, in particular, called us often during the pandemic. But something about that conversation, something was off, and I watched as everything about that entire day changed in an instant. I watched Kelly's eyes get very focused, and her shoulders tensed up, and her breath came faster. I listened as her words stumbled over each other as she was trying to make sense of what she was hearing. And I could tell that this wasn't an I miss you phone call. This phone call was bad news. Some of you know the bad news phone call because you've gotten it yourself. Maybe it was your friend calling to tell you to say that the divorce papers are already signed and his wife is leaving him. Or maybe it was your mom calling to say that the cancer's back and the doctor says she might have weeks to live. Some of you could tell me exactly where you were, where you were standing, what you were doing when you got the bad news phone call. How did you feel in that moment? How did you respond? Did you respond in strength or in doubt? Did you respond in faith or in anger? How about joy? I bet you didn't respond in joy, and I can tell you right now that when Kelly found out that her dad had passed away from a heart attack in the spring of 2020, on the other side of the barricade, covered in paint, she was not rejoicing. Maybe for some of you, your bad news didn't come from, from the phone. Maybe it was a conversation at the dining room table, or maybe it was a Facebook message or an email. Maybe for some of you, your bad news is in the future, and I don't mean to be a downer this morning, but that bad news is coming. That conversation is coming. None of us are getting any younger. Bad stuff happens. That's how life is. What are you going to do when you get bad news? How are you going to respond? Well, today's text is about a man who got incredibly bad news. About the worst news you can get, honestly. <clears throat> the man's name is Habakkuk, and he lived 600 years before Jesus did. Uh, he was a prophet in Israel. And I want you to listen to how Habakkuk describes the way that he felt when he heard his bad news. So that, to do that, we're going to need to read our, in our Bibles. And this is in Habakkuk chapter 3, verse 16. I hope you found it by now. And I don't blame you if you haven't found it yet. 
Listen to what Habakkuk writes in Habakkuk 3, verse 16. He says, I hear and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters into my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. I want you to listen to the way that Habakkuk describes how he feels. Trembling lips. Uh, Rottenness entering his bones. Legs trembling beneath him. Rotten bones, what do you think that means? I think that is an incredible picture. It's like his bones are made out of dry, dead wood. Like they're not even strong enough to support his body. Some of you may know how that feels. What made Habakkuk feel like this? Well, he says, I hear and my body trembles. So it was something he heard. But what did he hear? What did Habakkuk hear that made his whole body tremble? That is going to be the first question that we're going to talk about this morning. What did Habakkuk hear? And the second question is related. What will Habakkuk do next? How will Habakkuk respond to his bad news? As we answer that question from Scripture, we're going to find that it uncovers some follow-up questions, which doesn't really make any sense to you right now, and that's okay, because you'll understand when we get there. But the point is this. I have been so incredibly inspired by Habakkuk and by the text that he wrote. I've been so inspired by this text. Some of you may know that I had a foster child in my home for two years. He slept in my bed, and he ate at my table, and I loved him like a son, and he went back to live with his mom against the advice of the agency that was supposed to protect him. And this was the text that strengthened my faith during that time. And I believe that God, by his spirit, wants to strengthen your faith today to help you process pain from your past and to prepare you for bad news in your future. And plus, I think you'll find, the way that I did, that if you can trust God for the weighty things in life, the small little things in life become a lot easier to deal with in comparison. So first question, what bad news did Habakkuk receive? What made him tremble? In order to understand that, I need to give you a quick history lesson followed by a quick Bible lesson. And fair warning here, the history lesson, the Bible lesson, they're going to be a little bit, uh, require a little bit more attention than uh, the second question that we get to. But stay with me. It's going to be worth it. And if you don't catch everything, that's okay. It'll make sense later. So first history lesson. Long, long ago, before Habakkuk was born, there was a civil war in Israel, which divided God's people into two different kingdoms. There was the northern kingdom of Israel in the north, and there was the southern kingdom of Judea in the south, just like our civil war split our country into two different countries for a time, right? There was the union in the north and the confederacy in the south. Well, that's what happened in Israel. About a hundred years before Habakkuk wrote this book, there was an evil king in the Assyrian Empire named Sennacherib. Sennacherib was a bad dude, and he led his army to attack the northern kingdom of Israel, and he succeeded. He conquered them, killed a bunch of people, and he deported a bunch of, uh, of the people he didn't kill. Sennacherib also tried to conquer the southern kingdom of Judah, 
But God miraculously intervened, and he wiped out Sennacherib's army. You can read all about that in 2 Kings, 2 Chronicles, and 2 Wikipedia. That sounds like a joke because it is. Uh, but honestly, there's great stuff on Wikipedia. And also, if I get any of my history details wrong, you'll know where I got my information from. <laughs> All right, uh, so Sennacherib died, right? And after he died, the Assyrian Empire started to crumble. And there was a new empire that came along, the Babylonian Empire. And the Babylonian Empire, which was led by King Nebuchadnezzar, they did what Sennacherib was not able to do. They did conquer the southern kingdom. Nebuchadnezzar sacked Jerusalem, tore down Solomon's temple. He killed a bunch of people and deported just about everybody else. You can read all about him in the first couple chapters of Daniel. And if you know Daniel's story, you may remember that King Nebuchadnezzar is the king that threw Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego into the fiery furnace. Now, it's important to note here, as a sidebar, that Babylon was a city, not a country, and the region around Babylon was known as Chaldea, just like Rome is a city, right, and the region around Rome is called Italy, and just like you could call people from Rome Romans, or you could call them Italians, you could also refer to people from Babylon, you could refer to them as Babylonians or as Chaldeans. And that's going to be important because the way Habakkuk describes them isn't with the term that we're familiar with, Babylonians. He uses the term Chaldeans. So tuck that back in your brain. We're going to come back to that later. So first the Syrian Empire, then the Babylonian Empire, and after the Babylonian Empire came the Persian Empire. So that's our history lesson for today. <clears throat> the southern kingdom of Judah was almost conquered by King Sennacherib with the Assyrians. And then they were actually conquered by Nebuchadnezzar with the Babylonians or Chaldeans. And then the Babylonians were conquered by the Persians. But none of that so far has made any context connection at all with bad news or with Habakkuk. So let's switch gears again and let's talk about the book of Habakkuk. This is going to be our Bible lesson portion. Habakkuk lived in the southern kingdom of Judea and he wrote this book during the rule of the Assyrian Empire. He wrote it after Israel was conquered by Sennacherib, but before Babylon took over with Nebuchadnezzar. And to be honest, it was not a very good time in Israel's history. The kings of that time period were pretty evil. They hated God, and they hated his word. They worshipped other gods, and they promoted horrific rituals of worship to those gods. Those rituals of worship included child sacrifice and cult prostitution. In fact, things were so bad in Judea that it prompted Habakkuk to cry out to God, God, why is this happening? And we're going to read about that. But before we do, I have three really quick things that I need to say. Two about the text and then one about how this next section is going to go. So uh, first of all, I want to explain the structure of the book, which is very simple. It's only three chapters, so we can explain the whole structure of the book. Most of Habakkuk is a conversation between the prophet and God. Habakkuk asks a question, and God answers him. And then Habakkuk answers, asks a follow-up question, and then God answers him. And then Habakkuk writes a song of praise about the experience. 
Now we're going to study the last four verses of that song of praise. But the whole chapter 3 is a song of praise. Second, I want to say a word about the category of literature that Habakkuk is written in. Category of literature? That seems like such a fancy word. Uh, but let me explain what I mean. The whole book is written in poetry, even the conversation. And if you and I were going to write a book, we were going to put a conversation in it, we would just say, well, he said that, and then she said that, and then he said that, and then she said, what? <clears throat> That's not how Habakkuk wrote this. Even the conversation is written in poetry. So if you go into the book with that mindset, you'll be able to understand it a lot better. <clears throat> Next, what we're going to try and do is I'm going to try and give you the overall thrust, the main points, the high points of the book, so we can get the context for when Habakkuk gets to this point. He's like, my body's trembling, and I don't know what's going on. But in order to do that, that means we're going to mention things and then keep on going. Sort of like, you know, we're moving on a road trip and we see exits pop up and we're going to say, that's an exit, but we're not going to go down that exit because we're trying to make it to our destination. Are you with me? It doesn't matter because I got the mic, so here we go. <laughs> Let's start at the beginning. Does that sound like a good place to start? Let's start with Habakkuk chapter 1 and we're going to start in verse 2. And for those of you taking notes, this is Habakkuk's first question. Read with me in Habakkuk 1, verse 2. Habakkuk writes this, O Lord, how long shall I cry for help, and you will not hear? Or cry to you violence, and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity, and why do you look idly at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise, so the law is paralyzed, and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous, so justice goes forth perverted. I want you to notice two different complaints that Habakkuk makes against God. In verse 2, he complains that God isn't hearing his prayers. How long shall I cry for help, but you will not hear? And in verse 3, he complains that God doesn't see what he sees. Why do you make me see iniquity? Why do you look idly at wrong? And I think this opening is so relatable. I mean, how many times have you felt like you're praying and God doesn't hear your prayers? Or how many times have you looked around you and said, man, this is messed up. Does God really see this? <clears throat> if I had time, I would encourage you to be like Habakkuk, to be bold in prayer, to be honest with him, tell him how you feel, seek answers in his word. But that is a different sermon, so we're going to move on. <clears throat> that was Habakkuk's first question. God, what are you doing? Next, look, look, let's look at God's first answer in verse 5. Look among the nations and see. Wonder and be astounded, for I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. God's initial answer to Habakkuk is look, see. Use your eyes, Habakkuk, because God is at work. He's not idle. So what's the disconnect? Why do we feel like God's not at work when actually he is at work? Well, it's because the way that God is working is not the way that we expect him to work. And that's the real problem, isn't it? We all have times when we feel like God's not at work, but really, he's been at work since before the foundation of the world. How is he at work here in this particular passage? Let's keep reading. But remember, this isn't our text, right? So we're only going to read verse 6. 
Let's read it. God says this, Behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, a.k.a. Babylonians, that bitter and hasty nation who march through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. God says the Chaldeans are going to seize dwellings not their own. So let me paraphrase. Let me explain. God's basically saying this. I have heard you, Habakkuk. I do see the evil people. And quite frankly, I've had enough of it. I'm going to use the Babylonians to bring judgment on my people. They're going to kill your soldiers, rape your women, burn your crops, steal your animals, and deport your children. You know, I think God was right. I don't think Habakkuk expected that answer. This is heavy news, folks. This is really, really bad news. Can you imagine praying to God about the evil in the world and him saying, oh, don't worry, I'm going to invade your country? If you were Habakkuk, wouldn't you have some questions? I know I would. Let's read what Habakkuk's questions are. Habakkuk's second question starts in verse 11, and it goes until chapter 2, and we're not going to read it. But let me summarize what his second question boils down to, basically. How could that possibly be better, God? How is that better? The Babylonians, they're worse than the Judeans. Why do they get to conquer us? That actually sounds worse to me, not better. And let's be honest, because this is exactly what we would say if we were in his shoes. How do you think God's going to answer Habakkuk? What could he possibly say to Habakkuk in this situation? Well, you can read God's answer in chapter 2. And again, we're not going to read that, but here's the punchline. After God uses the Babylonians to judge his people, God's going to use the Persians to judge the Babylonians. But the way that he does this is super unique. Instead of just saying, oh, don't worry, Babylon's going to get what's coming. You just got to wait for it. God uses poetic riddles to describe a Babylon's fate. That sounds weird, but that's that's what's in the text. I'm not even joking. You have to read it to understand. But what you'll find is basically the Hebrew equivalent of trash talk. If you can write out the cryptic poetic imagery and the ancient Hebrew poetry, what you'll find is the very finest trash talk you've ever read. It is scathing, and I highly recommend it. So that was question one. What was Habakkuk's bad news? Now let's move into the second section of the sermon. How will Habakkuk respond to this bad news, to this news that Babylon's going to invade his country? To see how Habakkuk responds, we turn now to the actual text we're studying this morning, which is chapter 3, verses 16 through 19. We're going to slow down a little bit and spend some time in this text. We already read most of verse 16 earlier, but let's read it again now that we know what Habakkuk's bad news is. Habakkuk says, I hear and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters into my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. Yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. 
So Habakkuk gets this bad news, right? God's going to wipe out his community. And he's so distraught about this that he's physically affected by the news. But how does Habakkuk respond? How does he respond to this soul-crushing news? By quietly waiting. He knows the day is coming when the Babylonians will invade, but he's not waiting for that day. He's waiting for the day after that day, the, way, the day when the Persians will conquer the Babylonians, the day that the Babylonians will have to pay for what they're going to do to God's people. How can Habakkuk wait quietly with quivering lips and rotten bones? Where does he find the strength to trust God, to be at peace despite horrible news? Let's keep reading in verse 17. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord, I will take joy in the God of my salvation. So there it is. There's our first answer. How does Habakkuk respond? He rejoices in God. Even if the fig tree doesn't blossom, Habakkuk is going to rejoice in God. Even if the grapes don't grow, Habakkuk is going to rejoice in God. Even if there's no olive oil or milk or bread or meat, Habakkuk is going to rejoice in God. Now what Habakkuk is doing here is he's imagining the worst-case scenario about what life might be like after the Babylonians invade. Take a look at his list in verse 17, and you'll notice that most of the items have to do with food. Figs would have been sort of like a dessert in those days. I mean, they didn't exactly have piles of granulated sugar in their cabinets. Uh, grapes, of course, would have been used to make wine. Olive oil was kind of their equivalent of butter. Fields would have been where the grain and vegetables came from. The flock refers to sheep and goats. The herd would have been cows and oxen. And these animals would not only have been a source of meat, but also of milk. Now, I want you to compare all of those things with everything you've eaten in the past two weeks. What have you eaten that doesn't involve one of those foods? Fruit, vegetables, oil, grain, dairy, meat. Probably not a whole lot. I mean, let's say you start with a food pyramid, right? And you start crossing things off, that Habakkuk crosses off. Pretty soon, all you've got is an empty triangle. And that's, that's bad enough, right? Not having food. But this list represents more than just food. In that time period, and honestly, most time periods throughout human history, food production was the entire economy. There were no banks or dollar bills or trampoline parks or chemical plants. In those days, most people were either farmers or shepherds or both farmers and shepherds. So for Habakkuk, this isn't just a grocery list. What he's anticipating here is total economic meltdown, complete social collapse. Our closest modern conception to this would be nuclear apocalypse. That's the scale of disruption that Habakkuk is anticipating here. Can you imagine how horrible that would be? I mean, COVID was bad enough, right? Some of us felt like that was the end of the world. But imagine if the Mid-Ohio Valley were to actually be invaded. I mean, boots on the ground invaded. Let's say, let's pretend that China invades Taiwan tomorrow. And the political fallout launches the United States into World War III. 
what if China and Russia team up with South Africa, say, and they start bombing the crap out of the Mid-Ohio Valley, taking out strategic targets up and down the, -Ohio, the, the Ohio River? Is this scenario a little bit far-fetched? Probably. But come along with me as we examine this, because this is what Habakkuk is feeling. This is what he's imagining. He's imagining is a country getting invaded. <clears throat> Imagine if all the power plants in the Mid-Ohio Valley get taken out. How will you power your iPhone? How will you power your computer? If you don't have a computer, do you still have a job? What if they start taking out bridges? If the bridges get taken out, how long before the gas, gas stations run out of gas? How long until the grocery stores run out of food? How long before the water treatment plants are unable to process safe drinking water? Those of you with friends and family out of state, if half the roads between here and there have bridges that are out, and you don't have a phone with a GPS to navigate, will you ever see them again? Can you get there without gas? If the bridges are gone and the power plants are gone, do you think they're going to leave the natural gas wells alone? If the natural gas wells go, how will you cook your food? How will you heat your home? We'll go to Kinsey's house, right? <laughs> but what if, what if Kinsey gets drafted? What if all the men in this room get drafted and get deployed overseas? How many of us survive? It's hard for us to imagine, right? I gotta admit, it's hard for us to imagine. The US hasn't been invaded in a really long time. But for Habakkuk, this just happened to Israel not too long before. Remember, he's in the southern kingdom. The northern kingdom, they're already conquered. So for him, he's not fabricating this scenario out of thin air. He's already watched the ending of season one. He has a pretty good idea of what's gonna go down in season two. And yet, he still rejoices. That's the point of the list. Habakkuk isn't just throwing a pity party saying, woe is me, I'm going to go eat worms. Habakkuk is listing all the things that could happen but still will not prevent him from rejoicing. Even though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit beyond the vines, even though the product of the olive fail and the fields yield no food, even if the flock be cut off from the fold and there be no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. Now let's stop for a second and take a sidebar because there's three different ways that Habakkuk is describing himself here. And I'm really glad that he doesn't give us only one description. We have three to compare against. What am I talking about? Well, first, Habakkuk is trembling in verse 16. Then he's quietly waiting in verse 16. And now in verse 18, he's rejoicing. <clears throat> I'm glad we have all three of these poetic descriptions because any one, of this, any one of these would give us an incomplete picture. I think that's especially true when he talks about rejoicing because I think rejoicing for Habakkuk is maybe not as enthusiastic as we would typically associate with the term rejoice. Instead, I think for Habakkuk, rejoicing looks more muted, like quietly waiting, being at peace, trusting God in the midst of difficult circumstances. But at the same time, that joy doesn't erase or minimize the very real 
physical pain that he's going through. Please hear that this morning. This isn't a mask to wear. This is real joy in the midst of real sorrow. I don't know why I said that like that, sorrow. I mean sorrow. So how does Habakkuk respond when he finds out his country's getting conquered? He rejoices. But why? 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 Why, Habakkuk? Why are you rejoicing? I mean, not only has Habakkuk gotten way worse news than you or I will probably ever get in our lives, but his response is insane. His rejoicing is next level. I mean, the man writes an entire song of praise, not just for himself, but for all of God's people to use in corporate worship in his day and in our day. Some of you may not know how hard it is to write a song, but I have written several songs, and trust me, they're all garbage compared to Habakkuk's, but I can still appreciate the effort that Habakkuk put into this one. When you write a song, you have to choose phrases that paint the picture you want, but also fit the sound and rhythm of all the other phrases in the song. If you want the song to be fresh and original, you have to find new ways to say things that other people have described a thousand times already, but you can't make it too fresh and original or it'll be obscure and nobody's gonna, gonna know what you're talking about. And that's just the lyrics. You add to that a compelling melody with a chord progression to go underneath it. You need enough repetition so that it, you can kind of develop a groove, right? But you don't want so much repetition that it becomes boring. What's my point here? that writing a song takes time. And that means that this isn't just a fleeting feeling for Habakkuk or an emotional response. This isn't just a mountaintop experience that only lasts for a weekend. This is a deep reality that has gripped Habakkuk's life and has completely transformed his behavior. But why, why does Habakkuk rejoice? Well, it's because of what Habakkuk is rejoicing in. He rejoices in God. He enjoys the fact that God is God. And that may sound like such a Sunday school answer, but please hear me because this is the most important thing I'm gonna say all morning. Two times Habakkuk writes that his joy is in God. The first time he says it so plainly that it is completely impossible for us to miss. Yet I will rejoice in God. The second time, he deliberately rearranges his sentence structure to say the exact same thing. Yet I will take joy in the God of my salvation. Notice that his joy is not in the salvation, but instead in the God of salvation. His joy is in God because of God's salvation, and that may seem like a subtle difference to you, but what Habakkuk has written here has incredible implications because it's possible, brothers and sisters, it's possible to love God's salvation, but not God. It's possible to want God's mercy, but not care that that mercy is meant to restore you to a relationship with him. It's possible to want strength from God to live a good life, to have a good family, to do well at your job without caring at all that that strength is meant to bring us closer to God and not caring at all about God himself. But that's not what Habakkuk is doing here. Instead, he takes God's gift of salvation and uses that as fuel for his joy by connecting the gift back to God. 
Now, when Habakkuk uses the term salvation here, he's not using the term salvation in the same way that you or I would, and that's because Habakkuk lived before Jesus while we live after Jesus. So he doesn't have the full picture of Christ's salva sal saving work on the cross. That was a real struggle. Thanks for sticking with me on that. <clears throat> he lived before Jesus, right? So um, what is he talking about when he uses the term salvation? He's not, not talking about salvation from God's wrath. What he's talking about is he's talking about salvation of God's people from the Babylonians. But that's not going to happen for a long time, right? I mean, they haven't even been invaded yet. So God rescuing them through the Persians, that's, that's not going to come for a long time. So what does Habakkuk do in the meantime? How can he rejoice when he doesn't have the salvation that he's waiting for? He can't rejoice in the salvation because that hasn't happened yet. Instead, Habakkuk takes God's promise that he will deliver his people and he connects it back to who God is, a God who saves. And that is what he rejoices in. So that's the why. Why Habakkuk rejoices? He rejoices not in his circumstances, but instead in his God. And maybe at this point in the sermon, you're like, well, good for job, good for Habakkuk. I'm glad that all worked out for him. But don't you wish you had faith like Habakkuk? Don't you wish that you knew a joy so potent that you could lose everything you love in this world and still say God is enough? This book was written as an example for us. There's a reason that we still have it today. God wants us to be like Habakkuk. So if we want to try and get on his level, we need to find out more than just why he rejoiced. We need to examine how how he was enabled to rejoice despite everything he was going through. And to do that, we need to keep reading. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places to the choir master with stringed instruments. It's kind of an awesome title, isn't it, choir master? I told Cody and Chris that I wouldn't stay on at the praise band unless they only called me the choir master. So from now on, you all can refer to me as choir master. Obviously, that's a joke, but I think that's hilarious. <clears throat> okay, let's bring it back. We looked at how Habakkuk responded to bad news. We talked about why Habakkuk responded that way. Now it's the time to talk about why, how, how he was enabled to rejoice. Spoiler alert, he received strength from God. In fact, that's exactly what Habakkuk says, and I hope by now you can tell. I'm not making this up. I'm just explaining what's there. In verse 19, Habakkuk says, God the Lord is my strength. And then he uses two poetic images to paint a picture of how God strengthened him. The first poetic image is straight out of a comic book. Habakkuk says God gave him deer feet. Why deer feet? Well, because deer are fast, deer are nimble, and deer are sure-footed. The second image is related. Habakkuk describes himself walking on high places. And by high places, I think that Habakkuk means exactly that, high places, like a high cliff or a high mountain. If 
you take both images together, you get something like a picture of a mountain goat carefully picking their way up the side of a mountain cliff. And you're just like, what are you standing on? <clears throat> if you've never seen a YouTube video, I highly recommend just Google deer on a cliff or goat on a cliff. Or go over to Kinsey's house while his son's on the roof and you see Jack Kinsey just walking along the side of the roof. You'll know what the text is talking about. And I think that's an incredible picture of the way that God strengthens his people to trust him despite terrible circumstances. <clears throat> I mean, you can read this book and you can read it and be like, man, I'm way down here, spiritually speaking, right? And Habakkuk is way up there and I have no idea how to get up to his level. But that's the point. That's the point of the text. That's exactly what Habakkuk is saying. He's saying God's the one who gives the strength. He's the one who strengthens us. All you have to do is start climbing. God's the one who gives the strength. Strength to do what? Strength to rejoice in the midst of difficult circumstances. Now Habakkuk didn't come up with this imagery. He's actually quoting Psalm 18, which is one of David's psalms. And that's the, the text that I chose this morning for the call to worship. You may remember that deer feet bit. <clears throat> that's one of the perks of the choir, being the choir master. You get to choose what the call to worship is. In Psalm 18, David writes about how God gave him supernatural power to conquer his enemies, which makes sense. If you know anything about David, you know that he had a lot of enemies and he fought a lot of battles. God strengthened his hand to conquer all of them. But I think that can be a problem for us because I think deep down, when we think about God giving us strength, that's the strength we want. We want David's strength, not Habakkuk's strength. We want supernatural strength to kill our enemies, to fight our demons, to conquer our enemies and make our circumstances different. But I think the kind of strength that Habakkuk is talking about here is not that kind of strength. And honestly, I think that God rarely gives us that kind of strength. I think instead, more often than not, God intends to give us supernatural strength to trust him in the midst of bad news rather than to give us power to fix the situation. And I think that the Apostle Paul agrees, agrees with me. So we're going to read, no, I'm going to read. You can just listen, because I don't want you to have to turn all the way there. But listen to the way that Paul prays for strength for the Ephesian church in Ephesians chapter 3. Just listen. Paul writes this, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength, strength to do what, Paul? Strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now, why would Paul pray for that, for the Ephesian church? Why did Paul pray for strength to comprehend the fullness of God? Well, it's because he was in prison. That's his reason. He says, for this reason I bow before the Father. The reason is because he was in prison. That's, that's what verse 13 is. We didn't read that, but that was their bad news. Paul didn't want the Ephesians to lose heart over what he was suffering on their behalf. So Paul and Habakkuk are both saying the same thing. They're both praying for inner strength to know God 
and to rejoice in who God is. And that strength can only come from God. But how does God give that strength to us? Does he just zap us with spiritual adrenaline? Does he hype us up on Holy Spirit? Does he send like packets of like Holy Spirit and now I'm like strong? That's not how God works. The short answer is that God works through means, means with an N, not memes like the pictures you find on the internet. God works through means. And what I mean by that is that God uses simple, ordinary things in our daily lives to do extraordinary things. And often these means are so simple and so ordinary that we can be tempted to rush by without even recognizing them. In fact, we've already talked about three means of grace in Habakkuk's life, and it's really possible that you didn't even notice them. The first means of grace in Habakkuk's life is prayer. That's it, prayer. And what do I mean by prayer? What is prayer? Prayer is just talking to God. It's having a conversation with him. And that's what the whole book of Habakkuk is. It's a conversation between Habakkuk and God. The second means of grace in Habakkuk's life is scripture study. If you spend some time in this book, especially in the song that Habakkuk writes, you'll realize how often Habakkuk quotes other Old Testament authors. I mean, we already saw how he quotes David in Psalm 18, right? He quotes David other times too, and he mentions a whole bunch of different times in Israel's history where God saved his people, and he uses that to fuel his expectation that God's going to save him in the future. Weaving those Bible references together into a song of praise is no joke, let me tell you. Third, the third mean of grace, means of grace we see in Habakkuk's life is corporate worship. And that just means meeting weekly with God's people. And where do I see that in the text? Well, it's actually the bit about the choir master. Because Habakkuk write, didn't write this song for himself, he wrote it to be sung by the whole congregation of believers. This is how God worked in Habakkuk's life, by imparting supernatural strength through ordinary means so that he could have faith to rejoice in God himself. And that joy enabled him to wait patiently for God's judgment to fall on his community. I'm going to read that again because if you can follow this one sentence, you'll be able to sum up everything that we've talked about so far. The way that God worked in Habakkuk's life was by imparting supernatural strength to him through ordinary means so that he could have faith to rejoice in God himself and that joy enabled him to wait patiently for God's judgment to fall on his community. Prayer, scripture, and corporate worship. It can seem so boring, can it? But that's how we encounter God. That's where the joy is. And that's good news because this isn't just for the spiritual elite. This isn't just for the apostles, for the prophets, for the teachers. This isn't just for Habakkuk and Paul and the Ephesian church. This is for us. This joy is for you and me. If we're willing to take the time to make the time to pursue that joy, what could be more worth your time than that? And I hope that encourages you this morning. I hope that you're inspired to pursue joy in God more to meet him in prayer more, to study your Bible more. And I hope that when bad things happen, and they will happen, I hope that when you have big, deep questions like Habakkuk did, you know that you're not alone. 
Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for preserving this text. Pray that you'd please give us strength and desire to pursue you more this week, to pray more this week, to read our Bibles more this week. Not just because that's what we're supposed to do, because that's where you are, God. Give us strength to comprehend what is the height and breadth and the depth of your love for us. Pray that you'd give us strength to rejoice in the midst of difficult circumstances. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.